Good morning, everyone. It's so good to be together. It's so good to worship the Lord on the Lord's Day. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray together. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this time. Um, Lord, sanctify us by the truth. We know your word is truth. Uh, Keep us safe from the evil one. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know you better and understand what you have called us to do, that we may comprehend how wide, long, deep, uh, and awesome your great love for us is. Uh, which is beyond our comprehension. May you open up our ears and our minds that we may receive your word and leave here uh, different, Lord. Give faith to those who do not have it and increase faith for all of us. Uh, We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, We are uh, in Matthew today, uh, but I'm going to give a really quick recap of the last few weeks. The last few weeks we've sort of been you know, having messages uh, about certain things. Uh, a couple, three weeks ago, uh, Shannon was here, and he talked about repentance or the art of turning away. Uh, last week, Lois talked about abiding and remaining in Christ from John 15, the art of resting and knowing. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about um, a passage I've never preached on before, so I'm excited for it. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Matthew and the disciples' call from Jesus, and subsequently, our call from Jesus to go and do likewise. So, the art of going, art of turning away from sin, art of knowing, resting, and now we're going to talk about the art of going. If you want to open up your pew Bible or your phone to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be in verse 9. Uh, This account of Jesus calling Matthew is in the Synoptic Gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. In both Mark and Luke, uh, they refer to this individual as Levi, but here in Matthew, uh, he refers to himself as Matthew. This is the gospel writer. This is the disciple. This is someone who Jesus called, eventually became a disciple, eventually became a an apostle. But what's also interesting to note is it's not written here until Matthew chapter 9. Uh, but the other gospels talk about it really early. Uh, Mark 2, Luke 5. You got to ask why that is. Uh, there are two gospels that talk about the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, and that's Luke and that's Matthew. Uh, and they both have different orders for when they called Matthew. And I thought that was really interesting. And so I wanted to figure out why that is. And it was sort of bothering me. I was like, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but it was like sort of in my mind. So I was like, well, I got to find out what people say about it. In Luke, we have the calling of Matthew right before the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. But in Matthew, it's right after. And the order is not the thing that's important. Uh, It's not necessarily one is not contradicting the other. The whole point of the gospel, they have different themes. And so, but what I think about Matthew is he wants to show the contrast of his character and of his nature before he came to Christ. And all the things on the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, store up treasures in heaven, follow the narrow way, uh, forgiving others, not judging, all of those things, Matthew had none of those characteristics. That wasn't who he was, that wasn't in his nature. And so what I think he's trying to say, and what we're going to unpack for the next 20, 30 minutes is simply this. If, if God's grace can be uh, poured out on Matthew, someone who is antithetical to anything that Jesus talked about on the Sermon on the Mount, if grace can be poured on Matthew, then it can also be poured out on you and me, and it can be poured out on those around us. If there's hope for Matthew, there's hope for us. And I think that's the idea, right? Contrasting Matthew's nature and his character. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. And we'll be in these few verses. Let's go ahead. Uh, I'll go ahead and read, and we'll all read together. In Matthew verse 9, it simply says this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. 
While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And as we usually do, we're just going to take this scripture, this text, verse by verse, and see what God has for us in it. Starting in verse 9, I'm going to read it again. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, our character for the day, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And we got to ask, as we, with every verse, it says that Jesus went on from there. And when it says that, you got to ask, from where? In the account before, there's this interesting story of Jesus interacting with this man who's paralyzed. And he couldn't get to Jesus, and Jesus was healing people. So four friends put him on a mat, carried him up to the roof, broke the roof a little bit, put him down. Uh, and then Jesus healed him physically of his paralysis. But not only did Jesus heal him physically, he also healed him spiritually, meaning he forgave his sins, showing Jesus to be different than anyone else that has ever walked this planet. So now you have Jesus. Jesus goes from uh, the giant crowd right to the individual to Matthew. And unlike the story before, right, the person came for a physical healing, but got healed spiritually. And here in Matthew, he doesn't need physical healing, but he needs this healing from his lifestyle, from the shame he's carrying, from the guilt, from his bad decisions. And he knows that in Jesus, all of it can be wiped out. Or maybe he didn't know that quite yet, but he'll come to know and learn these things about Jesus. So all of us have things that we need sorted and figured out, and they can only come through Christ and through the power of Christ. So Jesus came from there, continuing on in verse 9, it says, And Jesus, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at, a tax, at the tax collector's booth. Matthew, one of the 12 disciples, what's also interesting is these 12 disciples, they're all really um, sort of shady characters, right? They're sort of interesting. They're sort of weird. They're all unique. You wouldn't find these 12 people hanging out unless it was for Jesus. Maybe sort of like us, right? Uh, not the shifty part, but the hanging out part. <laughs> Uh, but what is wonderful to see all these disciples together, you have Andrew, Peter, James, and John, all were fishermen, so they probably not popular, smelled a little bit, nobody really wants to hang out with them. We have Simon the Zealot, who was... Um, who engaged in politics and anarchy. He wanted to overthrow Rome, so he was sort of uh, antagonistic, maybe a little devious. Uh, well, you have Judas, who was a thief and a betrayer, not a super great friend. You have Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Thaddeus. They don't really say anything about them. But then you have Paul, the last apostle of after Matthias. He was a murderer and a persecutor of Christians. That is an interesting group of guys. And here comes our last character for the day, Matthew, the tax collector, right? I don't know when you're growing up, usually my grandma would always tell me like, be careful who you spend your time with, like be careful. And I don't know, I would never uh, suggest hanging out with these sorts of people, uh, but we come to learn and know that we all are those sorts of people and there's all hope found in Christ. So here we have Matthew, 
the tax collector. So what was a tax collector? Back in this time, it was someone who worked for Rome that imposed taxes on a specific region or people. For us, we don't ever really see the tax collectors, and maybe that's a good thing because maybe we, we wouldn't be so Jesus-like. Uh, but in this time, then have uh, the mail system that we do today. So in order to collect taxes, they would have to go to them or the people would have to come and report taxes. So here you have a tax collector who was by nature in conflict with the Jews right? Because this man is working under Rome, so they're naturally in conflict with the Jews or the religious elite. Why? There are two reasons why there was conflict, and so these people naturally wouldn't be friends. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these religious elites, and Matthew, the tax collector. They wouldn't naturally be friends. Why? Because Matthew often expressed or uh, had frequent abuse and had a sort of a tyrannical spirit, meaning what? If there was something that was due to Rome, he would not only collect that, but he would then collect a little bit more to fatten up his wallet. Kind of like Zacchaeus in chapter 19, when Zacchaeus found Jesus, he's like, I'm going to give back people all that I've stole. This was just a characteristic of some tax collectors. And Matthew definitely fit that bill as well. The second thing is they enforced taxes from Rome. Uh, which was a natural, an opposition to the Jews, which also expressed and reminded everyone of their servitude to Rome. These were God's chosen people given the promised land by God, and yet they're under rule. And so it's just a continual reminder that this promise that God gave them, they didn't have it because of their disobedience. This is what um, a church historian, J.W. Shepard, says about Matthew, and he says this. According to rabbinism, There was no hope for a man like Levi or Matthew. He was excluded from all religious fellowship. His money was considered tainted and defiled anyone who accepted it. He could not serve as a witness. Why? Because he was a liar, not trustworthy. The rabbis had no word of help for the publican because they expected him to be external, uh, expected him by external conformity to the law to be justified before God. So there was no hope for Matthew. There's somebody who's the worst of the worst, somebody you don't want to hang out with, somebody you don't want knocking on your door, someone who you don't respond to their text message to, it's going to be Matthew, right? This is the guy that you just don't want to be around. And for the Jewish elite, there's no spiritual hope for him. There's no physical hope for him. He has no community besides the worst of the worst. And yet Jesus, in his knowledge and love, this is what he says to him, follow me. Out of all the people that Jesus could have chose on earth, he chose someone like Matthew. Follow me, he told him. And then what was Matthew's response? Matthew got up and he followed him. This is such an interesting exchange because Matthew at this time is wealthy. He's well off. He's able to do sort of whatever he wants. He has some sort of power because uh, the Jews or others can't touch him because he's working for Rome. He's sort of set up, right? His 401k is set. His family is set. His kids are good. He just has to continue this way until his last days, and he'll be good in, in an earthly definition, in an earthly way. But the authority of Christ was stronger than the authority of the Roman government. And what can only be found in Christ is greater than what is found in riches and wild living. And Matthew knew that because he lived it and he knew this isn't it. So our first point today is simply this, get up and follow Jesus. We all follow, what, we all follow something, right? Uh, whether we like it or not, how we spend our time is, is, is a good uh, parameter to understand uh, 
what we follow, how we spend our money, who we talk to, how we spend our time. These are all good metrics to figure out what do we follow. And what we follow matters. There is no greater task for the Christian and follower of Jesus than to simply follow Jesus. How do you raise your kids by following Jesus? How do you work with integrity by following Jesus? How do you live retirement well by following Jesus? How do you get through your junior year in high school by following Jesus? How do you honor God with your life by following Jesus? How can you get through today by following Jesus? And yet, if we're honest, there's much more difficulty in following Jesus. There are lures and pools of this world that will pull us in a million different directions. Or maybe it's not even the world. Maybe sometimes it's ourselves and our own desires and wants and needs and hopes that pull us away from Christ. So what we're going to do is we're just going to look at a few examples within the Bible, within the scriptures of people choosing not to follow Jesus and people do choosing to follow Jesus. Uh, Here we we are in Luke chapter 9, verse 57 and 62. There are three sets of people that go to follow or attempt to follow Jesus, but don't. Spoiler alert. Uh, And we're going to look at each one starting in verse 7. It says this, or 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. What I think is going on here is this man sees Jesus and he sees all these people around him and he sees all the miracles he can do. You don't need to buy food anymore because Jesus could just multiply it, right? You don't need a boat because Jesus could just walk on it, right? Any ailment you have, Jesus can heal it. Like that's the guy I want to go and follow. Like I'll follow you. And he just courageously or maybe foolishly goes to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. But then reality hits him and Jesus says, Uh, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. I'm here today and I'm there tomorrow. The next day, I don't even know where I'm going to be. I don't even know where I'm going to go. I don't even know what it's going to look like, but we're going there. And, And the man, it was just too much. So the reality of following Jesus or the idea of following Jesus looked a lot better than the reality of following Jesus. So thus, the man did not follow Jesus. We have the next example in verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This is probably uh, the harshest of the three. But here now we have another man. This is a different example. The first man saw Jesus, all the wonderful things that he offers, and he says, I'll follow you. But here we have an account of Jesus going to somebody and, and extending an invitation to follow him. And so he goes to him and he says, follow me. But then the man replies, let me go and bury my father. Uh, theologians don't understand this to mean his father has like a week left or days left. Uh, they understand this to be that his father is still relatively young. And so wait, let me live out these years with my family. And then once they pass, then, then I'll go ahead and go follow you. But Jesus is saying, no, right? You got to love me with your heart, mind, soul, body, strength. And sometimes that may mean costing the relationships that are closest to you. And here we have, and so reality hit this person as well. He really didn't want to follow Jesus. And verse 12 or verse 61, our next example is now another man says, still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the service of the kingdom of God. And these are really hard scriptures to take in, especially this one, because I feel often my hand is on the plow, but I look back at this other thing behind me, or I look back, back at this thing that I could do for myself right? Or what makes me comfortable or what is the easy way or what is the way in which culture is going? Like that's the way that I sort of look. But yet you have this man and here you have Jesus, right? No one who looks back is fit 
for the, um, no one who looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. The cost of following Jesus is extremely high, but it's worth it. It's always worth it because this life that we live is small, it's short, um, but it's very important. So the decisions we make now will affect our decisions for eternity. And that's extremely important. So following Jesus is not simply, I'm going to follow him, but it's really deciding with my whole heart, I'm going to follow him. In contrast, we have an example in the Old Testament, probably one of my favorite examples. We have uh, Elijah the prophet sort of uh, going towards his last days on earth. And right before he's about to go with God in a whirlwind, God tasks him with a few things. And one of those tasks in 1 Kings 19 is simply this, go uh, and anoint Elisha to succeed you as prophet. So Elijah, and I don't know why they did the Elisha, Elijah thing, right? It's sort of confusing. But Elijah goes and finds Elisha, takes off his uh, robe or cloak and puts it on him, basically signifying you're going to be the next prophet in Israel. Not very many people were seeking such a job, a job where you were hated and possibly you were going to be killed, uh, where your life was threatened, where you were on the run, where you had no home, where you had to fend for yourself and you felt sort of alone. So thus you have Elisha. And this is what he does in 1 Kings 19 verse 21. So Elisha left and went back. He took his yoke of oxen, so goes back home. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out and followed Elijah and became his servant. So here you have Elisha. There's no plan B for him. When God told Elijah to call Elisha, there was no plan B. He went home. He took his calf, his oxen. He slaughtered them. He takes his equipment, his job, his livelihood. He burns it, breaks it down, sacrifices his like, his like main prize, right? Where he gets his income. And then he feeds the town. And then he goes off and he follows Elijah and meaning he follows God. I'm not saying take whatever you have today and put it in a pile and burn it. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't do that. But what's interesting is Elisha, he knew the temptations of what it would be like if these things were still there. Oh, I can always go back to that. I can always go do that. But for Elisha, he wanted to be a man that was focused uh, and sure and looking towards ahead of what God had called him to do. And the last example that we all understand this idea now, I'm sure, is Luke chapter 5, and it's probably one of my favorites. Uh, this is where Jesus calls his other disciples. We have Simon Peter, James, and John that are out fishing, and he has this interaction with them. And then Peter discovers that this guy, Jesus, is different. Um, and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then Jesus calls them, and he says, follow me. And then in Luke chapter 5, verse 11, it says this. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. And these were fishermen. This is all they knew. They didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know the Bible. They didn't know how to be um, eventual pastors in the early church. They didn't know any of those things. And so they have this haul of fish that was money and that was wealth and would sustain them for a long time. And they took it all to shore and they left it. And then they went to go follow Jesus. And what a beautiful example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. But unlike the three people in our earlier text, which is a contrast to, to Elijah and Elisha, we have people who said no to God's calling to follow him, like people like Judas, people like the young ruler, right? People like the Pharisees that said no to the call of Jesus. And in contrast stands Matthew, someone who was wicked and cruel and mean. And yet when Jesus came to him and said, follow me, he knew and understood what that meant. I'm going to follow Jesus. There's a greater opportunity ahead of me. And it's the restoration of my soul and the restoration of my life. 
So here we have these followers that did not have perfect track records and their consistency and their resolve was not always there. Although they followed Jesus, they still gave way here and there, just like us who have all committed to following Jesus. But yet there are some times where we sort of give way or we sort of falter or we sort of set other things as priorities. And that's called, that's why it's called a walk with Christ, right? Because it's a walk, it's a journey, And so, but yet it's a good reminder that it's our jobs and our roles to follow where Jesus will lead us. And although we will fall, there's a proverb, and it's one of my favorite, and it simply says, though the righteous person falls seven times, they get back up, they rise up again, and that is our goal. So what will our stories say about when and how and where we follow Jesus? Whatever place you are at, don't forget that your primary task is to follow Jesus and use this as an opportunity to think about how can I recalibrate the things that I'm focused on, the things that I'm doing, how I'm spending my time, how I'm spending my money, who I'm interacting with. How can I use this as a time to refocus it on Jesus? And, that, and those things are difficult because it means giving away things we enjoy, Stop doing things that maybe we shouldn't be doing. Those things are hard, but we can do it. And we can follow in the footsteps of Jesus when he says, come and follow me. And likewise, let's continue our scripture. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, it says this. While Jesus was having dinner, so remember Matthew gets up, follows Jesus, leaves everything behind. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate Uh, with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? These are the people that Matthew associates with. Uh, I always like the principle that you you, you are like the five people you spend the most time with. And so here you have Matthew spending time with not so great characters, harlots, thieves, gamblers, liars, swindlers, people of dishonesty. And this is who he is. And this is the group of people that now Jesus and the disciples are with. So where do you find Jesus? Right smack in the middle of all of that. And it's such a beautiful picture of his love for those whom others or society or maybe ourselves and me would call sinners and tax collectors and whatever else. It also reminds me of that story that Shannon read three weeks back of the birthday party with, for a prostitute, right? That might sound weird if you, haven't, if you weren't here three weeks ago, but I encourage you to listen to that. But what a joy and a gift it was for these people that the religious elite sort of uh, checked off as, as um, never going to be saved for Jesus to sit down and eat with them. And what a joy and what a gift from Matthew to the, his first act after he goes and follows Jesus is to invite all those he knows to hear the story of who Christ is. And in contrast, we have the Jews of the community who would not have responded to that invitation. They would have not RSVP'd or just not shown up, right? Because they don't want to be in the house of a tax collector, someone like Matthew. And maybe the inference here is that if Jesus were who he claimed to be, then he would have sought out the, Jew, the Jews' company, And he would have wanted to go spend time with them and go have dinner with them because they're faithful, they're righteous, they're good. But obviously, that's not the case. And this, of course, is not Jesus' only time interacting with those whom the world will call lesser thans. And I say that because there's no such thing as anyone who's lesser than. Uh, But the reality is, is culture has deemed people as people you don't want to interact with or, or lesser or tax collectors or sinners. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus goes and touches a man who has leprosy. Uh, and society said, don't interact with those people. Don't go near them. He touches them and he heals them. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus freed people of unclean spirits. 
In John chapter four, Jesus went to a Samaritan woman uh, who lived a life of promiscuity and invited her into the kingdom. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus forgave the evil man that was hanging on the cross next to him. Jesus is in the the business of going to those whom society checks off as uh, unlikely. And then not only that, and maybe the most starkest example is Jesus also came after you and came after me. Romans 5, 8 simply says this, but God God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. What a beautiful gift it is to understand uh, the depravity of ourselves, but yet the love that God has for us and the restoration that means for our lives. We're simultaneously sinners, but we're also not defined by that sin because of what Jesus did. So we stand righteous and right before a loving and perfect God. It's such a beautiful gift. And so our second point is simply this, go to the tax collectors and sinners. The life Um, and the life of the follower of Jesus should be messy. Uh, But if I'm honest, I think for me, sometimes I don't share my faith as I should, or I don't invite people over to my home as I should, or whatever else. And I think sometimes it's simply because I I like my clean-cut life a little bit, right? I like my home that's neat and clean and organized. I like that. And, uh, but yet the reality is when you come into someone else's life, you sort of enter their stuff, right? Enter their space uh, and all the things that they carry. And then when you enter someone else's life, what do you do, right? You come with all of your stuff, uh, all of your things. Uh, we call them the three H's. You come with your hurts, your habits, and your hangups. No matter where you are or, or who you are, we all come with those things. We all offer those things, and we all bring those things in when others interact with us. But I think that that's where Jesus wants us to be, in that mess, in that stuff, in those places, right with the tax collectors and the sinners, and of whom I and you, we may be the chief of those. And yet God has called us to be with people like that. And I think that's the role of the church is to enter into each other's stuff and live together and be together, and then invite others with their stuff and with their hurts and their habits and hangups and invite them with all of their uh, baggage and bring them into them, and then all together, knowing our own depravity and our need, we all look to Jesus together. And that's the role of the church is inviting and encouraging others in with all of their stuff. Um, Hopefully there's room because you have all of your stuff, right? And that's the idea is inviting others into what Jesus has for us. This past summer, I spent two weeks away, uh, one week on a week-long mission trip and one week on uh, at summer camp. Uh, with the high school students. It was awesome. Uh, But one thing is also true. It was awesome, but it was also really messy. So (laughs) it was awesome and it was messy. Uh, But one thing that I love about these trips is you have no choice but to get uh, close with those around you, right? Like you just have no choice. You're with them 24-7. You can't really get away as much as you want to. There's always some student yelling or screaming or doing something that they shouldn't or whatever. Um, Or maybe that's me doing those things. But then you start to learn things about people or students that you're with, right? You uh, end up finding out who snores, which is interesting. You find out who doesn't like to take showers. Okay, no judgment. Uh, You find out that there was a particular student that only brought one pair of socks for a week-long trip. You can't make these things up. Uh, You find out that uh, somebody went to a weekend camp and didn't bring anything to sleep in, no blanket, no pillow, no nothing. Um, you find out all of these things about each other, but it's also wonderful because you're able to see each other's idiosyncrasies, right, our faults, and yet you're still able to love each other and live that life with each other. And I think that that's how the church is meant to be, right? We all have stuff. 
And we all have things and we all carry it. And I think that's the beautiful part of the church. And isn't that what the church is supposed to be for each other? And then isn't that what we're supposed to be to those uh, out in the world? And so one initiative in which we can welcome people into our stuff and we can welcome our stuff into other people's lives is the table gatherings that we have. And so if you're not part of that, if you're not signed up for that, it's just a quick opportunity to share a meal with someone else in this congregation, in this room, and meet someone that maybe you haven't had. A great way to get to know someone is over food or coffee. And so if you're not signed up for that, this is a great initiative that we're launching. And we really encourage you to sign up for that, getting people's stuff, not literally when you go over their house, but then invite them into your stuff as well. And that is the role and goal of the church. Let's finish off our text. Here we are in Matthew now, chapter 12. And it says this, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the wealthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Here we have Jesus making a clear distinction between the righteous, and I put that in quotes, because what he's really talking about is the followers of the Pharisees or the Pharisees themselves. They're righteous because they don't think that they need Jesus. They don't think that they need God. They think they can get to heaven by their own good works, by a life well lived, but we all understand that not to be true. And then you have the other, ca- other category, the sinners, uh, which is those who had come to follow Jesus, like Matthew, like the text collot tax collectors, the harlots, etc., etc., sinners, those who know their need, those who know their depravity, those who understand our great need and our hope that's only found in Christ. So here you have the contrast. Jesus meant that the sinner who followed Jesus in, in, who followed Jesus in faith were made right before God. No matter what your stuff is, no matter what your mess is, no matter what that is, all things can be restored and renewed in Christ. And that's what Jesus is talking about. But before one can do that, there needs to be self-awareness of our need for Christ, having his saving work in our life. And so let us ask the simple question, do you know your great need for a savior? Because it is only those who are sick, meaning those who know their need, those who know how sinful we are, how depraved, how we wander on our own, how we run from God like Jonah, how we do our own things, how we complain every, every which way and every step, right? Do we know our great need for our savior and the hope that is only found in him? And if you don't know it, learn about it, think about it, talk about it, read the scriptures. There's this quote by J.C. Ryle, and it simply says this, the first thing that is needed in order to have an interest in Christ is to deeply feel our own corruption and to be willing to come to him for deliverance. The problem we all share, and when I say we, I mean the whole human populace since the beginning of Adam and Eve, is that we are by nature sinful and thus deserving of God's wrath. We all stray and we run right? That marks our, our, our combined, right, uniformity, right? We all need help, all of us. When God says, don't lie, we lie. When God says, don't steal, we steal. When God says, have no idols, we hold too many that they just fall. When God says, give and serve the poor, we buy the next best thing. And when I say that, I mean me, because we all have this need of who Jesus is, and I understand my needs. So although sometimes I'll wander and sometimes I'll, I'll go my own way a little bit, I always come back to Jesus because I know that the world doesn't satisfy like it says that it satisfies. Like it just doesn't do that. And the only satisfaction is found in a life that is restored by Christ, in Christ, 
knowing that you were once a sinner and far from Jesus, but he restored you and made you new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for you and me so that in Jesus we might become what? The righteousness of God. Imagine that you and me being made the righteousness of God, that you and me, sinful people, can stand not only as righteous, but stand rightly before a perfect, awesome, strong, wonderful God. Imagine that. And that is only found in Jesus. So the beautiful message here is that if God comes and saves a man like Matthew, and if he comes and saves a man like me, he can come and save people like us. That's the idea right, of Matthew the tax collector. But then when he comes and he calls us and he saves us and we see what new life looks like and we've been restored and renewed, right, and redeemed people, we then go out and we invite other people into hearing the wonderful life that is found in Christ, that abundant and awesome life that is worth it. And so that is why when John the Baptist first came, he simply said this, right, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And that is why in Paul, um, Ephesians chapter 2, he simply has this breakdown. Some of my favorite verses in scripture is uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and it's a great uh, little account of our life before Christ, uh, then what happened when we came to know Christ, then what our life should look like after that moment. And it's simply this. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul describes us as dead in our transgressions and sins. There's no hope for you and for me apart from Christ. But then in verse 4 and 5, it says this, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. The things that are dead can never be made alive on their own. They can't be made alive by their own good works. We can't be made alive by our own righteous acts, by how we feel, by our initiatives, by nothing. We can never stand rightly before God unless God, in his great love for us, comes down and offers and extends faith to you as a gift. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that it's not from yourself, that it is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. And so our life and our hope, as Matthew knew it, as we understand it, is only found through the person and life of Christ. And it's only fulfilled when we go and we live like Jesus. And that is the goal of the follower of Jesus, to go and do likewise. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he closes it off with a wonderful verse. And he says, um, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to go out and do the things that God has called us to do. So he saved us because he's rich in mercy, full of love. And then he goes and he calls us to go out and be the church outside these walls. And it's not until we see our great need for a savior that we can come to him in repentance and faith. And so as we close, I have two quick applications as we close our message time. And the first one is this. For those who have not known their need, uh, for Jesus and then think that they can get to Jesus by their own devices, uh, that won't work. And so our first point is this. If Matthew could find grace, so can you. And if Matthew finds grace continuously, we do as well. So even in our mess-ups and our hang-ups and our habits, we can always turn to Jesus and be restored because of who he is. And the second application point is this. For those who have been made, made alive can stand right before God who in your life needs to hear the saving work of Christ? Go and invite them into the church, into your home, into your life. 
And that is the role and the goal of the church. And that's exactly what happened to Matthew. And may that also be like us in our stories of faith with those around us. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I thank you for this time that we get to come and worship before you. We thank you for giving us such a great example, like a man like Matthew. Oh Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have um, poured out on us, the love that you have poured out on us. We thank you for your character and nature. We thank you for saving us, Lord, that you have offered us the gift of grace that we could never earn by anything we do. And it's not found in the law, but it's found in Christ. And we thank you for that redemption of our souls, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you give us faith and give us encouragement uh, to follow you this week, today, tomorrow, the next day, that we may turn from the things, sin that so easily entangles, and we may follow after you, Lord, and we may honor you. And also pray a blessing over those who are struggling uh, the life and follower of Jesus, following of Jesus is not always easy, Lord. Give us strength to do so. Give us wisdom and power and guidance and courage that we may follow after you all the days of our lives. And in Jesus' name we all pray. Amen.